everyone, welcome to New Communities First Ever Video Service. Um, I just wanted to come on and say, if this is your first time at New Community, welcome. We are glad that you are here. If you have called New Community your home for 20 years, we are glad that you are here and welcome. And I also just wanted to reiterate that no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter where you're from, uh, you are welcome at New Community. And more than that, we're excited to have you a part of our community. So welcome. Uh, as we head into our service, um, as you know, most of you know, we have been doing uh, podcasts for the last six months since COVID started. So hopefully you've been able to take part in those and um, we will continue doing more podcasts in the future. But as this has gone on longer than we expected or hoped, uh, we wanted to do something a little different today. So we are bringing to you a video service. And the hope is that it is similar to a regular service that we would have in our building when we are face-to-face -face and together and with people. So you'll see familiar parts. There will be communion. There's going to be a talk. There's uh, going to be a greeting time. Um, there's going to be liturgy, all of these things. So please just take a breath, grab a cup of coffee, um, and join into the service and be together as a community, even though we can't be together in person. And right now, I would like to bring you all into our greeting time. So on the right-hand side of the screen, I believe, there's gonna be a little chat box, and I would love it if you guys just popped in and said hi, and hopefully you'll see other, other faces, <laughs> other names of people that you know, other families. Um, if you're new, great, pop on and say hi, and maybe tell us where you're from, uh, but join into this greeting time. All right, we love you, new community, and I hope you can enjoy this service. Come. It's so good to be here with you this morning. Um, thanks, Jules, for that greeting time. Please join me for a call to worship. You should see the words on the side of your screen as I begin to read. God who determines the rise and fall of nations, who declares the day of the Lord approaching, God who weeps when we harm one another and draws close to the powerless and the weak, this God speaks the authority, saying, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. It is this God who calls us to return. Lord, we adore you with gladness. We thank you in gratitude. For our God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 
May your church universal, which we serve and love, and your people embedded in this community, live from your mercy and walk in love. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise God from blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures heavy Scripture reading for this morning is from Joel 2, 1 through 3, 6 through 9, and 12 through 16. If you do not have your Bible with you, the words will be on the screen for you to read along. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. 
In prayer, let us confess to God as a community and pray for renewal. Show grace toward us, all merciful Father. In your compassion, forgive us our sins, those known and unknown, things done and left undone. Uphold us by your Spirit, that we may live before you in openness and integrity, and may we bring honor and glory to your name. Together we pray for our families, friends, and neighbors, for our community, our city, and the world, for all people in their daily lives and occupations. May the splendor of Christ overwhelm you, and may you take off your shoes, aware that you are ever in the presence of the holy and living God. We pray for all those in danger or in a constant state of fear, for those who are alone or in any kind of trouble, for victims of hunger and oppression, pray for peace, freedom, and hope. For all who work for justice and peace, for those who minister to the sick and the needy, and those who proclaim the gospel and seek the unity of the Church of God, may God reach out to you and nourish you, and may Christ renew you in the image of your Creator. May the God of Abraham, the God who sent Jesus to redeem us, the God whose covenant is eternal, we exalt you, O God, our King, and praise your name forever. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. New community, we're now going to enter into a time of communion. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Find the elements in your home. It could be wine or juice. It could be bread or a cracker, but those will be the elements that you take and that you use for communion today. Our worship team will sing through another song or two. You have plenty of time. There is no need to rush. But as you take the bread, remember what Jesus has done for you and for us. And as you take the cup, do that in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made for all. Thank you. 
seeing your faces, but we're glad that we can be here together this morning. Um, hopefully you were able to take communion with your family um, together. And this morning we are going to read a devotion together. Um, it's from Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And the devotion that we're going to read is called oops, Trying and Trusting. Here we go. A preacher called David Martin Lloyd-Jones sometimes, sometimes asked people, are you a Christian? If they said, I'm trying, he knew they didn't really understand. Because being a Christian isn't about trying, it's about trusting. Trusting not in what you must do, but in what God has done. And he has done everything. So our devotional this morning um, shared that loving Jesus is not about trying, it's about trusting. Hmm. I wonder what things you try to be better at. Let's take a second and think about that. What do you try to be better at? I think we try to be better at a lot of things. Um, a couple things that come to mind. Maybe you try to be a better soccer player uh, by practicing more or trying to be a better daughter, maybe by doing the dishes or trying to be a better friend, uh, maybe by remembering their birthdays. And I think these aren't bad things. It's just that when it comes to loving God, he cares about your heart, not just about what you do. You don't have to try to earn his approval because you know what? He loves you already. Let that sink in. He loves you already. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord look, looks at the heart. Right here. And so during our time together this morning, um, I have a task for each and every one of you. As your parents hear from Russ and Kevin here in a bit, I want you to scour your house and try to find some items that you can make a paper chain with. And actually, it's a heart paper chain just like this one. Mercy and I decided to make this together. Um, she picked out <laughs> the colors. 
So we just found some strips of paper. And what we did with that is we folded them in half, or I did. And then once you fold them in half, you can turn in the corners like so. And we stapled it right there. And then once we had each of these little ones, you can staple them all together. And we're making this paper chain heart um, during the rest of the sermon today in order to remind you that it is not about what we do or say that makes God love us more. It's about our hearts and trusting that we are unconditionally loved by God because each and every one of you are. <sighs> love you kids come and enjoy the rest of the service. See you soon. Well, new community. Here we go. We're doing this. We are uh, in a new format. This is a bit different for us. And uh, we've got our plexiglass here in the middle, mm -hmm. making sure we're COVID sensitive. Uh -huh. And uh, we're hanging in the office and uh, doing a new format. So um, we want to say from the very beginning, have a little bit of grace with us. Neither Russ or I are known for our video presence, um, but we are doing this. And uh, really the reason for this new format is to try to make some new ways to connect with the community. So we've said it a million times. This has been an incredibly strange season. Uh, we have felt disconnected from the community. You have probably felt disconnected from the community. So this is another effort to try to figure out how do we actually get to see people or people see us so that we can uh, try to feel a little bit more connected. Yeah. Typically this Saturday would have been our end of summer barbecue or beginning of fall barbecue, yep. uh, as we've called it in different points. And so um, we felt like this was a, an appropriate Sunday to do something a little bit different, to try something uh, and figure out if this might be uh, a format that serves our community well. Yeah. So hopefully uh, your morning is off to a great start. Uh, you're enjoying being together. I know it is something that I've missed. Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about that often. And so to be with you this morning is, is great. Uh, we are looking at the prophets. This is the second week in the series, Distant Cousins and Weird Uncles. And uh, we're going through the minor prophets, and we will be going all the way through each minor prophet until uh, the beginning of Advent. So right at the end of November, we'll shift from this series into a series uh, on Advent. The uh, wonderful thing about the minor prophets is that these were... Um unique voices in very unique times. Uh, and we, like we've already said, are in a unique time. Yeah. And as we thought through what might our community best be served by uh, as, our, as we continue to study through the fall, we thought maybe looking into some of these prophetic voices um, might actually speak some truth into where we are currently now, yeah. where we're existing in our culture and in our time. The whole series is meant uh, to both push and challenge at different points, but then also encourage at different points. Yeah. One of the hesitancies we've had with uh, this series and that we're very sensitive to is this is not a series um, that's intended to um, place undue burden on people. Many of the prophetic uh, words that we read are incredibly challenging and Absolutely. call us to something that um, 
is uh, incredible. And we know that that call is the call that Jesus places on us. Um, But it's never, it will not be intended to be a place to um, put stress in people's lives or or make people feel like they're not measuring up, but rather a place to really dive into the scripture, study, wrestle with these words, and figure out how do these challenge us to live like a kingdom people uh, in this time. Yeah. Uh, our prophet for this morning is from the book of Joel, and uh, hopefully you got the chance to watch the video. I know uh, every Wednesday we are sending out a link to a video done by the Bible Project. Uh, they do an exceptional job of kind of overviewing each particular book of the Bible. Uh, hopefully you had a chance this week to watch the book of Joel in preparation for this Sunday. Uh, if you didn't, normally in a podcast we would tell you at this point to stop the video or stop the podcast, pause, watch the video, come back to us, we'll be waiting, and uh, we can carry on. Uh, this morning, this format doesn't allow for it. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't get a chance to watch it, we'd encourage you to watch it afterwards. Um, but do know that some of what we're sharing this morning is based on a prior knowledge of you understanding a little bit of the uh, overall book. Uh, so that, that might uh, impact it a little bit, but I think for the most part, you're still going to understand the book of Joel and the challenge we have this morning. Sure. So really foundationally, what Joel is pointing to in the book, and in some ways is this climax of the new Eden, that God is pointing them to a return to the garden and that the kingdom will in fact come in fullness in the day of the Lord in the future at some point. Joel seems to make this claim that the people of Israel will not see the fruit of the new Eden or be in the land of Shalom unless something changes. And that something is really what we're talking about today. There seems to be like a bit of a condition that Joel uh, places in his writing. So here's what Joel 2, 12 through 13 says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is uh, very clearly a call to repentance. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in defining repentance, said this, Repentance means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. Now, repentance is an incredibly powerful concept that I think often is misunderstood. Rather than uh, experiencing some guilt for actions we've done or left undone, uh, repentance tends to, especially within the church, be more communicated through the idea of shame. So shame on you that you did that thing. You should feel horrible about it rather than feeling guilty and desiring to change the course of our actions or to turn or return to Christ, um, I think other things get convoluted with that. Yeah, and that that shame becomes a lifelong journey of um, that oppressive feeling of, uh, I'm a shameful person, I am not right in the eyes of God, rather than, like you said, that um, feeling of guilt and then that change that repentance uh, repentance calls us to. Yeah, I think a lot of times uh, what we tend to do, especially certain personality types, is to beat ourselves up, right? To say, I did it again, I screwed up, I hate myself, I'm so frustrated. Um, And I don't think that's what God is calling us to. I think he's calling us to return to him, return to the ways of Yahweh, to kind of reorient life, 
Uh, and if we do that, then we're back on this path of movement toward Christ, and yeah. that's what he's and uh, desiring. Living in that shame creates that cycle, too, that cycle of you're beating yourself up, and then uh, there's this uh, natural tendency to go and find ways to make yourself feel better, sure. uh, to try to appease that pain that you're feeling, right. which oftentimes leads you right back in right. to the same thing. Well, it's a Christianity that um, in some ways demands that you try harder. Yeah. And that's the opposite of grace. It's yeah. the opposite of what we've been called into. Mm -hmm. Now, Joel does something I think unique in chapter two where he proposes that repentance can look um, disingenuous. It can look like we're faking it. Uh, he says specifically, rend your hearts and not your garments. This idea of outward expressions of repentance that don't have inward realities. So he's saying, don't put on sackcloth and ashes. Don't uh, play the part. Don't pretend. Uh, don't do any of those outward things that might make other people think you've actually repented. But instead, genuinely be grieved, mm -hmm. genuinely desire to change, and then uh, allow that to come about. Yeah. Isaiah 1 uh, gets at this, um, this idea of faking it in terms of your repentance. And here's what Isaiah 1 I believe it's 10 through 17 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are, you multiplied, uh, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath calling of assemblies. I cannot endure the iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. So Isaiah gets at this idea that God, uh, God knows when we're faking it, and that is not at all what he desires, right. what he requires, but rather that change of heart, that change of action, and that's what we read in 16 and 17. Um, faking it in our context can look a lot like this, but it can also just be saying sorry to seek the approval of totally. other people. Uh, I don't know if you uh, have ever seen that in your kids. I have seen that in my kids before. <laughs> no, never in my kids. Yeah, yeah no, never, never. No. Certainly not. Um, but that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, and then a turn and a walk away. There is zero repentance in right. that moment. It's just, right. Dad told me to say sorry, I'm saying sorry, and <laughs> totally. now I'm walking away. Yeah. Or um, even better, the, um, I'm sorry that that uh, hurt you. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean I did anything <laughs> yeah. wrong, it's totally. just you're a wimp. <laughs> totally. And what comes from that is really zero intent to change, yeah. right? And that is, again, not only what Joel is saying, but that is what we're reading here in Isaiah, is that yeah. um, true repentance has this intent to change on one side. And that's, uh, that's what Joel is calling us yeah. to. Yeah, and I think Isaiah's words are harsh. Yeah. I mean, they're basically saying, I'm not interested in worship. I'm not interested in you praying. Yeah. I'm not interested in you coming to church. If you're just faking it. Um, then, I hate those things. Yeah, yeah. despise <laughs> them. Yeah. Uh, and instead, I want uh, genuine, true repentance. And... 
throughout the book of Joel, that repentance really, if you, if you look at the whole book, it centers around this idea of are you a person who's choosing the ways of Yahweh mm -hmm. or are you a person who's choosing the ways of the world, the dominant culture around you? And so what Joel is asking is uh, this, this challenge that, uh, that we be the kind of people that live into what God is calling us into. Um, and that, I think, is something that Joel is also calling us to. We want these uh, minor prophets to be prophetic, not just to the people of Israel, but yeah. prophetic to us as well. Yeah. And so we have to ask the question, what might Joel be asking of us, the church? And in many ways, the Western church in our context has uh, fought between choosing between the ways of Yahweh and the ways of culture. And uh, for Kevin and I, we felt like there were two prominent ways that this mm. displays itself uh, that are, are quite clear to see. And so instead of uh, talking about numerous things that we could in ways the church has kind of diverged uh, from the path, uh, we felt like we would boil it down to two of maybe the most pressing ones. Yeah. Uh, the church's response to both power and possessions. And we want to start with power. Uh, many of you I know are aware because we've talked about it in your community before that uh, one of the kind of more fundamental moments in the life of the church is when Constantine came into power. And Constantine, in ruling the Roman Empire, uh, ushered in the church to kind of the center of uh, society and gave the church power, put him in the highest position in the land, uh, appointed rulers in the church, allowed those rulers to oversee law and judgment. Um, and many people, especially at the time, considered this the best thing that could have ever happened to the church. Yeah. The church has moved from the margins, and it is now at the center. It was an oppressed church. Oh, yeah. And now it has the highest place freedom. in Yeah, It has uh, full rule and reign over the land. It can declare law. It can legislate morality. Uh, in many ways, it, it had reached the pinnacle. And uh, this was, for many church historians, one of the more pivotal moments in the church. Now, I think they say that hindsight is twenty twenty, and if we're to be honest, um, I think we've had conversations about this, that we consider this moment is perhaps one of the largest downfalls mm -hmm. in the life of the church. Yeah. It was the moment that the church lost its missional focus. It's the moment that it forgot that it was about the Great Commission and seeing more and more people come to know who Jesus is and then living the ways of Jesus. And it became consumed instead with power, with status, with government, with position, and cared about that more than it cared about the gospel. So instead of being a people who were all about humility and the posture that Christ took, we became people who were hungry for position. Yeah. Instead of being people committed to service, uh, like Christ demonstrated, we became people who wanted to be served. And instead of being people with a posture of love, we became people who uh, ruled with law and judgment. Yeah. But this is not just a Constantine thing. This is an us thing, Absolutely. right? There's, uh, there's been a trickle-down effect from the fourth century when this happened to uh, our current day. Tim Chester says this, We are living not only in a post-Christian context, but in a post-Christendom context. Christendom is the formal or informal alliance of church and state that was the dominant model in Europe from the conversion of Constantine in the fourth century AD onward. The state authorized the church while the church supported the state. Christianity became a civil religion. To be born in the states of Europe was to be born into the church. This is all stuff that you were just trying to describe. Yep. 
The United States formally separated church and state and allowed for religious toleration, but in other, in other ways, Christendom has been as strong in the United States as in Europe. The assumption is that Christianity should have a privileged status in the culture and political discourse of the nation. Presidents and would-be presidents overtly reference their faith and close their speeches with the words, God bless America. So what's interesting about this is um, Constantine makes this uh, enormous decision that has ripple effects throughout all of the Christian experience after that. But in many ways... We are living in a post-Christendom world right now because the church in our current culture no longer actually occupies the center. We would suggest, and many people suggest, that we're in this post-Christian world that we are now operating, the church is now operating, and should operate on the margins from the outside, not from this position of power. Now, this can be terrifying to some. Because as human beings, I think there's this natural desire to be in power. There's a natural desire to have authority. And yet the Western church is no longer in this place and still seems to be struggling with how do we grab for power? How do we retain maybe what we once had? And so the church is trying to hold on to the last vestiges of power, control, and status. But, and here's the big but, we believe this could be the greatest change that could happen to the church. Absolutely. How we are living now could perhaps be the best thing for the church moving forward because being in the margins is always the place we were intended to be now that seems counterintuitive again it is because we think that you uh, the more influence the more power you have the more change you can make right look at the person of christ and that's where we see the kingdom that we operate under is an upside down kingdom Absolutely. everything is different right he shows us a different way a way that actually releases power releases authority uh, and operates from the margins and that's where social change, that's where uh, heart change actually begins to happen. Yeah, it's incredibly counterintuitive. And that counterintuitive move, I think, requires for us and for the church to repent. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only to repent, but to begin to make a fundamental shift. So first, we need to repent uh, that we repent of where we've placed our hope. If we're to be honest, I think the church and often Christians who make up the church, right, have placed our hope in things other than Christ. We've placed our hope in this Christendom model that if the church is at the center, if the church has power, if the church has political sway, if the church can somehow um, legislate morality, somehow uh, cause everyone to have to be a Christian, that that somehow will get us back to where we once were. And so we begin to wrestle with power and political authority and our candidate becomes the candidate who's the answer to solve the problem. Yep. Um, How else do you think this shows up? Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, a lot of it is that um, you kind of hold on to uh, the idea of the way it once was, right? This like um, the sentimentality of uh, if we could get back to World War II era, before then, or when we had morality, when the church was in power, then things would be different. Uh, Then we would all feel settled and fulfilled. Um, Our cultural, societal, political systems will never bring fulfillment, right? And when our hope is in those things, bringing fulfillment, 
we've gone askew. We're, yeah. we're already yeah. off the rails. Um, and we will be disappointed. Absolutely. Yep. It, it will never uh, create the result that we're hoping for. And in our disappointment, we will look for other ways to grab power to try to <laughs> yeah. be pleased, to be it's happy It's a vicious again. cycle. Yeah. And really what ends up happening is, and I think you see it in culture today, that we feel in Christendom that our voice is no longer as significant as it once was. Yeah. And so the world is on a slippery slope, becoming worse all the time, declining in its values. It does not hold traditional Christian values. We want to say we're continuing to be a Christian nation, but we look in the mirror and we go, it feels like that's being ripped away from us, right? And so we, instead of releasing that and saying, well, our hope was never in that. Yeah. Our hope was never in a political party. Our hope is not in that Biden is somehow going to fix our country yeah. or that the Republicans are going to be what's needed in order to to have our society be a just and yeah. free society. The truth is, as long as we have our hope in anything like that, we will be disappointed. Yeah. Our hope has to be completely in Christ alone. Yeah. And it's the only way forward is for us to place our hope in Christ. Yeah. And so this repentance, this uh, willingness to acknowledge that we've put our hope in the wrong place, needs to not only result in us repenting of that, but it also needs to result in a fundamental shift. And the shift that we're suggesting is a shift that allows our actions to align with our hope. So we need to move into a place where we're no longer power grabbing. We're no longer wishing with sentimentality that the way things used to be is the way things will be again. We no longer need to just bemoan the corruption of our culture. Instead, we need to shift to being about mission, which is our divine calling. Um, Hill says this, if our mission isn't disturbing and disrupting the status quo, then there's a problem. Mission born at the margins challenges the usual questions in their religious and power-based assumptions. It asks disruptive and disturbing questions about religion, wealth, identity, national pride, race, and gender relations, power, and more. Jesus disturbs and disrupts the comfortable status quo. And in missional movements, he reveals that he is present among the margins and moving from there. He invites us to confront the status quo and to offer another way. If that does not create a picture of what we're presently experiencing in our culture. I'm not sure what does because we are wrestling with religion, wealth, identity, national pride, race, gender. All of that is in torment. And into it, what we're called to is to mission, to have a posture overflowing with repentance that moves us to action. Otherwise, what we're doing is just simply rendering our garments and not our hearts. So, New Community, the question uh, that we are encouraging you to ask, the question that we are asking of ourselves is, where is your hope? And what do you intend to do about it? So the second thing we wanted to look at, this first one being power, the second thing was the church's response to possessions. So when the church had all of this power, had all of this authority that Constantine kind of just gave to it, With that came an incredible, incredible amount of wealth. It was the center of society, the center of culture, and therefore had large coffers. And 
I mean, some of it is wonderful because the most sure. wonderful painting, uh, painting and art and the architecture of all that time, yeah. that's all a function of the incredible wealth of the church. However, that's a little bit different than the way that the Bible talks about money, right? <laughs> For sure. The Bible seems pretty clear in that you cannot serve two masters, that either you love the one and hate the other, you cannot serve God and money. Yeah. Money is this other area that we believe the Western church has subtly gotten into bed with the world, that perhaps it comes from a genuine place based on uh, in, uh misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of theologically how do we actually handle or supposed to view money. We have taken money and placed it into this uh, idea that if you are wealthy, then God has favor on you. Absolutely. If you are able to amass uh, amounts of wealth, then certainly God must love you more because right. God cannot love the poor in the same way that he loves the rich, uh, or that even God is more happy with those, and therefore sure. He blesses certain people yeah. financially you've, in different you've ways. Pleased the angry God, yep. and so now He's yep. bestowing favor on. Yeah. Him. Now this we see this in the Western Church in this uh, with the roots of the prosperity gospel, yep. right? Again, mm -hmm. that idea that uh, your wealth is a function of God's happiness uh, or favor right. on you. This is not, again, just a fourth century problem. It's our continued problem. Absolutely. It's this thing that we continue to struggle with individually, yeah. but also as a like an organizational church uh, in that way too. Yeah, and I think it affects us in numerous ways. One of the ways I would suggest is that it creates in us as Christians a belief in a conditional love of God. Yep. That if um, if I somehow am not having my needs met or mm -hmm. somehow am not as affluent as all the people around me, then certainly God must be disappointed. Yeah. Uh, so if I then try harder or do more or figure out a way to please him, then I will get yep. the desires of my heart. I will get the money that I need. I will get the... And so it creates this conditional, almost like uh, we've talked about this before, the idea that God is this uh, divine um, candy dispenser, that yeah. if I pray the right prayer, um, I insert my money, I push the right button, then I'm going to get the thing that I always wanted. Yeah. I mean, so it's easy, again, to kind of look back and look at the church in the fourth century and, and up till now and say, oh, this is where they missed it. But again, this is just as much a problem with us. Yeah. Uh, we, I want to throw out just a couple of stats because these things are absolutely staggering. Uh, Barna, the Barna Research Institution, between 2013 and 2016, did this massive uh, survey and figured out that among practicing Christians, uh, the and or the not annual, sorry, the average giving was around three to four percent of their income. Of their income, mm -hmm. right? So then, uh, with that stat out there, Relevant Magazine goes through and does some further research to find that if just American Christians, just those in America. Yeah practicing Christians, church attending Christians were to give 10% of their salary, we would have an additional, not total, but an additional, additional. $165 billion annually. Annually. To do mission with. Annually. <laughs> annually. <laughs> annually, yep. Yeah. So a couple things to keep in mind. Three to 4%. Some of you might go, wow, that's minimal. Yeah. Some of you might go, that seems like a lot. Three to four percent is the same average amount of giving from Christians during the Great Depression. Yep. So it wasn't like three to four percent um, during the Great Depression was staggering amount. They had nothing. Yeah. And yet we're giving out of their nothing. Yeah. We have abundance and three to four percent. But to think that 
annually another 165 billion dollars yeah. would come into the church to do mission to meet needs within the city to care for the community mind-boggling yeah mind-boggling the the amount of um missional good that could be done is staggering i mean yeah. when you think about um uh global hunger global disease uh national international illiteracy all of those things yeah. i mean it's essentially nobody fully knows but essentially with that amount of money those things could be wiped out yeah in, in five years five, yeah <laughs> just a few years yeah. of uh of an, an allocation of these types of resources yeah i mean even imagine if we just narrowed it down to spokane we don't have any statistics on this but if just what they say should we make up some statistics that let's just <laughs> yeah. they Let's say on average yeah. though 10% of um, the metro population of Spokane goes to church on a given Sunday pre-covid obviously um, the that number if just 10% of this population was to then give 10% of their income um, the societal issues that often are brought up like homelessness and things like that radically radically different radically different yeah so to again think that this is uh oh well that was back then kind Not of issue problem. yeah it is very much our issue and this i think again requires repentance it mm -hmm. requires us to not only have repentance but a fundamental shift and we have to repent uh from where we've placed our trust um, it is easy for us in the culture in which we exist to place our trust first and foremost in ourselves uh, our culture even calls us to that uh, you pull up yourself by your own bootstraps. Yep. You work your way toward what you have. And so provide for your own needs. Provide for your own desires. Don't share what you have with others. You earned it. You keep it. You do what you need to do to put yourself in a place of financial security. We, we set up whole occupations around the idea that you've got to help me manage my wealth in a way that allows me not to have to ever depend on anyone else but to be able to depend on myself, right? Yeah. So and, and oftentimes I'll interject, yeah. even within our church, we look at those individuals with high esteem and sure. status rather than uh, who is the person whose faith is remarkable. Yeah. You know, who, uh, who actually has um, an obedience that, um, that is different than those around them. Those yeah. things are certainly seen, but we hold in high regard those people that have seemed to manage their wealth and have uh, climbed to the positions yeah. they're at. I, and again, not to pick on the church and to not pick on people that um, have made these kinds of decisions, but if you were to take a survey of local churches or even national churches, my guess is people that have been placed into positions of eldership or deacon mm -hmm. tend to be people who've been successful in business or yeah. affluent at some level, right? Yeah. Um, that could be intentional or unintentional. And it could be that those people are just as filled with the Spirit as yeah. someone else. But when you look at the book of Acts and you see them naming the first deacons or the first elders, it was always the conditions where this person's full of the Spirit, this person's yep. full of obedience, this person's full of like um, uh, just a genuine heart and life. Yeah. And never was the pocketbook a defining yep. characteristic of whether you got into a place of, yep. um, of a position of status. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there is this, uh, the church has really forgotten uh, where we need to be as it relates to uh, our resources and that Christ is the one who provides yeah. our needs. 
Now, we might not always get what we want, yeah. but he has made it very clear that he will always provide our needs. And this, not only do we need to shift and say, we have to repent of where we've placed our trust, it also, I think, calls us into action, uh, uh, calling us to be people of generosity. Yeah, uh, uh, calling us to be a people, uh, people whose lives look different than yep. those around us. Uh, I mean, the, the way that we... Uh, our lifestyles, the way that we live, the things that we choose to do or don't do, the things we choose to buy or don't buy, I think have to look different to a degree than um, those who are outside of the church. Yeah. Otherwise, we miss our ability to actually be a witness right. in that way. Right. Uh, and if we can't be told uh, that we're different from those around us, then um, we don't really have a place to speak into right. others' lives. Yeah, just earlier I quoted Hills saying that Part of what our calling in terms of mission is to do is to like go counterculture yeah. to the world around us. And if that's true missionally, that's also true Absolutely. with generosity. Yeah. So we need to look radically different than the world around us. And as Kevin just said, um, how we use our resources yeah. to meet needs, see a need, meet a need is an expression you've heard. There's a lot of truth to it. Uh, a, lot, a lot of times we're waiting for somebody else to take care of the yeah. need. And I think God has given us resources, not so that we can then wait on someone else to do yeah. it, but to say, well, if you have the money, then why don't you meet the need? Yeah. Why don't you do something about it? Because it really, it comes down to us living into the callings that we've yeah. been given. And this is, um, I th again, this is where there's a, um, a hesitancy on our part, because you could hear this and say, I guess I have to sell my house and uh, right. I have to uh, divest all of the uh, stuff I have, money, wealth that I have, or, retirement, yep. whatever. I think it can be as easy as see a need, meet a need. Sure. That we are a, a people attuned to the spirit, um, that we have an open hand mm -hmm. with our possessions, with our wealth, with our mm -hmm. finances. And that when things come to us, we are quick to say, I can meet that need. Absolutely. Uh, I can step up. I can serve. I can give up my time. I can serve. I can uh, take care of that person. Or I can cut a check or hand yeah. a $5 bill across yeah. the table or whatever it needs to be. Yeah. But um, to, just to be a people that begins to kind of orient ourselves in that way. Yeah. Um, one of the most practical ways, and I've, I've mentioned this before, uh, I think it's been years now, but um, I am blown away every time that I mow my lawn that it's not it's my mower yeah it doesn't need to be the truth of the matter is um, our neighbor just recently moved but for a while about eight years we shared everything yeah right uh, this this woman didn't go to the church wasn't connected to the church but she lived in a way with us that was generous whatever I have is yours and whatever you have is mine and that together we can share it. And if the church and the community of faith operated in that way, yeah. again, it would be using our resources in uh, ways that are incredibly powerful. Yeah. So new community, again, we have a question. And the question that we want to ask you, that we want to ask ourselves is, where is your trust and what do you intend to do about it? The beauty of Joel mm -hmm. is that the book does not stop here. He doesn't just say repent or else. Uh, he gives us God's response. And we read this before, but I, I think we need to read it again yeah. um, so that we can actually put ourselves into this position to say, um, God is not a God that is continually angry with us, right. but a God that wants to meet us, right? right? 
Joel says this again, 2, 12 through 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The response of God in our repentance in our turning back, that uh, the idea of that like 180 degree right. turn is uh, grace. It's mercy. It's this idea that God is slow to anger, that uh, he is abounding yep. in love. And that is the God that yep. we serve. Uh, and the repentance that we walk into knowingly when we make that turn, when we make that shift, this is the God that meets us. Yep, absolutely. A God of mercy, a God of grace, a God that is slow to anger, and a God that is abounding in love. So New Community, we're calling all of us to repent, um, to not be afraid of that word, Mm -hmm. but to lean into it, to wrestle with true repentance. Don't just rend your garments. Don't just go through the motions. Actually grieve in your heart and say, I want change to take place. Have I put my uh, have I put my hope in something to change the world other than Christ? Yeah. Have I put my trust in something to provide for me in the needs of my life mm-hmm. or my family yep. in something other than Christ? And if I have, I have to repent. Yeah. And then the next step is to ask, what am I called into? If that's what I'm repenting of, what action? If I'm really truly turning then it's going to ask something of me. And so what we're suggesting is that you pursue that action with all of you. Mm -hmm. So you repent with all of your heart, and then you pursue the action with all of your heart. And as Kevin just said, that's where you meet God. You meet God in the turning. So we want to wrap up our time and just give a couple quick instructions for uh, the rest of our morning. Yeah, so uh, we do hope that this has... um, been a, uh, a new and a fun and an encouraging format for you. Um, we've reached out to small group leaders and our hope is that your small group leader has uh, sent you a Zoom link. And if you're actively in a small group, that you will be able to jump into that Zoom call right now yep. or FaceTime or whatever the format is you're using and actually walk through some of this stuff, right. uh, have a discussion, wrestle with these things. Um, and maybe it might just be checking in. It might just be, uh, again, connecting with one another. But this seemed like a really great opportunity after this uh, more uh, video virtual service to actually be with people in the ways that we can be with right. people right now. Um, another thing that we wanted to show is we've been talking about this book, this Walter Brueggemann book. This is... Um, not a devotional in the way that the Brueggemann book was uh, when we went through Lent, but rather an aid or a guide as we read through the Minor Prophets. So um, don't think that you're going to follow a or find a day that coincides exactly with this talk, nope. but rather um, kind of a, a guide, an aid, a, a resource for our community to walk through as we study the Minor Prophets. So if you've not picked this book up, pick this book up. And I believe we have sent out a little bit of a reading yep, schedule. Send, well, send out the link and then it's going to be one chapter in that book every two weeks and uh, there's some questions and follow-up stuff it'd be great to interact with a small group about it or a friend accountability partner another way that we're just connected yeah yeah Uh, we want to be doing as many things together as possible to keep moving forward as a community Uh, the last thing if you are not in a small group if uh if you have not connected or maybe you've started um kind of coming to new community in a time when we're not meeting and would like to get more connected, uh, immediately following our time right now, 
Uh, there's going to be um, on the screen a link to a Zoom call. That Zoom call, I'll be on there, Julie Jones will be on there, and we will uh, facilitate a small group with you. Uh, so it'll be a chance for us to recap uh, what we just talked about, uh, to ask some questions of each other, to learn a little bit about who you are. Uh, you can learn a little bit more about the church, and um, we'll just follow the Zoom link on the screen uh, immediately following our time. I'm going to wrap up our time with a benediction, and you can uh, just join me in this. New community, may our lives be like a river flowing with the force of the one who fashioned us. May our course follow where the Lord leads, and may our waters reflect the light of Christ who goes with us and calls us by name. May our waters swell with the grace of Christ who hovered over the face of the waters. Let us refresh others this week with the love of the Father, the gentleness of the Son, and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace this week. We love you.